Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back Porch Stories with Chuck Stead. This is part three of our three-part Solstice Story series uh, you've been listening to for at least the last couple of weeks. And uh, we're going to get into part three, the final part, today. Uh, it is December, I think it's December 23rd when you're listening to this. Well, maybe we'll answer the age-old question. Oh, the big question is coming up. Is yep. there a Santa Claus? Boy. <laughs> All right. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is Chuck Stead. Now, Dougie Cramshaw was not in a good way. Ever since his incident on Santa's lap, he was sure that Christmas would remain a dark holiday for him. Dougie was a firm believer in Santa Claus, but his was a Santa Claus that doesn't have to visit your house on the night of Christmas. His was a Santa that just kept a close celestial eye on your behavior and then whispered his findings into the ear of a sleeping parent. So Doug figured he was finished. To his way of thinking, the P incident was like a beacon that brought Big Brother Santa's attention to the accumulated wrongdoings of the entire year. Doug figured the only way he could amend this was by making up for it in the final days before Christmas. This meant 24-hour goodness, which for Ricky's little brother was a real challenge. He was one of those remarkable people who early in life find that although he can identify bad behavior well enough, Good behavior was kind of an unknown. When Ricky and I set out on the ring-buying expedition for Cindy, we invited Doug to join us. We three walked down along the river to the Suffering Ball Field and up the back way into town. Just as we were past the town sewage plant, a cold wind blew over the open bay of the processor. It smelled like frozen septic behind Old Man Peabody's house. Old Man Peabody never put up any Christmas decorations at all. He was a real old sourpuss, and we never knew how he got that way. We started speculating on the subject when Doug told us it was obvious that Old Man Peabody had once committed the same horrendous act that Dougie was guilty of. He said in his little squirrely voice, That's probably why they call him Peabody. Well, the Woolworths was filled with holiday shoppers all crowding the aisles. We nudged our way over to the jewelry section, but there wasn't a ring that looked like the sort of thing that Cindy wanted. It was that little plastic butterfly ring that I was using for her finger size, and it kept me thinking that there ought to be a butterfly of some kind on this present for her. Back outside, the sky had turned ashen gray, and there was the smell of snow in the air. Ricky, still watching out for his kid brother, suggested we go into the soda shop and get some ice cream. Dougie was a real good ice cream eater. Some folks only cared for ice cream in the warm weather, but Doug was a year-round ice cream eater. So we went to Hagedorn's, and we sidled up to the old marble counter, and we ordered three ice cream cones, all vanilla. No sooner did we get them than the sound of a bell clanging started up. And there, just outside Hagedorn's, was a Santa, ringing a big brass bell for folks to toss change into his money bucket for the poor. Dougie was mortified. Ricky leaned into him and said, Now, Doug, you take them pennies you got there and you put them in Santa's poor bucket. That'll put you in good with him. No, no, they, they already know about me. Doug, if you do this, it'll, it'll make up for peeing on him. Really? Doug's face shook in terror, but Ricky insisted this was his only option. So Dougie, armed with his vanilla cone and clutching six copper pennies, started slowly for the door. 
Every time someone pushed open the big class door, the clanging of Santa's bell grew louder and then muffled some when the door closed. An older, a, a girl, an older girl, a teenager who was talking right behind us to the soda jerk about the power of her necklace was starting to get loud and annoying. In those days, the guy behind the counter was called a soda jerk because he had to jerk down on the tap handles to pour the soda pop. Anyway, this girl was getting louder, and she was saying weird things like, it's the power of life, and it's the zen in you, and the zen in me, and you know, we, we just moved away from her to get a better look at Dougie. Just as Dougie slipped past the open door, the soda jerk said, hey, hey, that's not worth a buck. And the girl said, you can't buy love, man, you can't buy love. Ricky and I slipped off our stools. We crossed to the window, and we watched Dougie move in toward the clanging Santa. He got up alongside the big red elfin man who clanged away shouting ho, 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 ho and shouting Merry Christmas as folks kept toicing their, their change into his little red bucket. Dougie raised his right hand over the bucket. He opened it up, but the pennies were stuck to his sweaty palm. Santa looked down and he saw this little boy with his hand hoovering over the money bucket, but the pennies were stuck to the underside of his hand. Santa stared at him and stopped ringing the bell. Dougie, in panic, shook his hand wildly, and all but one penny shot off and completely missed the bucket. Santa bent over, and Doug tried to shake the last penny free, but somehow, before he knew it, he slammed his vanilla cone into Santa's left eye. Santa, now partially blinded by the ice cream, stumbled forward and managed to hit himself in the other eye with his bell. This sent Dougie screaming in terror down the street. Ricky charged out after him. I turned around and slapped our money on the counter right next to... A heap of handmade butterflies. Little metal butterflies, all painted bright colors. The girl was trying to sell them to the soda jerk. I pulled out Cindy's plastic butterfly ring and I looked at it. I said to the girl, how much? She looked at me. She was lean and kind of hungry looking. She wore black eye makeup completely around her eyeballs. And her eyeballs were colored. They were like a colored green. And she smiled and she had missing teeth. And all of a sudden, I wished I had missing teeth. She said, for you, this little necklace is one dollar, little man. I stared at the 40 cents in my hand, knowing I did have a couple of dollars in my pocket, but I wasn't sure I could afford spending it all in one place. The soda jerk said, okay, I'll buy a ring from you for a buck if you give him one for whatever he's got in his hand. To me, it didn't matter that it wasn't a ring. It was a necklace, but what mattered was that it looked like the butterfly on Cindy's plastic ring. Outside... Feeling triumphant about my impulsive purchase, I found Ricky consoling Doug, who was now ready to run away and join the Navy. A few days before Christmas, Ricky's mother loaded her old mother, Grandma Cramshaw, into the family car. Ricky, Dougie, Cindy Maloney, and myself all climbed into the back seat. We drove off through Ramapo and rolled along some country roads. Pretty soon we came to a little tumble-down place, and it was there that, well, Mama July said we could pile out of the car. The old grandmother led the way. Her daughter, July, stayed behind reading a magazine. And I asked Ricky, wasn't she going to come? Well, she don't believe the same things her mom believes. Hmm. I tucked at his coat while he turned away, and I said, but do we believe what your grandmother believes? Cindy walked past me and said, believe all of it or none of it. So I caught up with Cindy. First of all, I don't even know what we're talking about. Right, she said. You spend a lot of time doing that, you know. Graham Cramshaw turned around and said, Shh, children, listen up. 
She looked at us. Her face was sudden and stark, with a red shawl wrapped around her old white head. She looked quite dramatic. We, each of us, had a thing that we had made. I had a little gluey configuration of popsicle sticks that was supposed to be a manger. Ricky had his little pine cone box. Cindy had a little angel like a stick figure, and Dougie had a picture of a clown he drew with crayons. He claimed it was made out of found stuff because he found the crayons on his closet floor. The clown was his annual incarnation of Jambola. He did this at every Halloween. It was his alter ego. The old lady looked at us, and then she took hold of Dougie's hand. She bent close to him, and she said, Do you believe? He shook his head up and down slowly. His lips were very red in the cold wind. His face was very white. I thought then that he looked kind of like a little elf. Graham Cramshaw, still holding Doug's hand, turned and knocked on the door of the shack. A moment later, it opened, and there, standing before us, was a great big old round man with long white silky hair and a flowing white beard. This was truly a Santa Claus man. He even had on red hunter's pants and a mean set of suspenders. They went all the way up and down his, his long johns. He was red all over. Tuggy backed up. The, la- the old lady, she held on to his hand. Well, 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 I see you brought some friends. Yes, she said. And these little people all have something for your solstice tree. Well then, huh, we better get started. He pulled on a red coat. It was black checkered. It was a hunting coat. Picking up a burlap bag, he stepped out into the cold night, into the last of the day. We followed him around the side of the house and up a path through some spindly birch trees. Doug asked where was his real Santa coat. Graham Cramshaw said that was something he wore only in times of real magic. This was just regular magic. We trudged along behind him. And again, Dougie asked about the coat and the reindeer. Where were they? Where were they? But Graham shushed him and told him to behave or Santa would get angry and not take us to his solstice tree. Then we came to a little clearing, and in the middle of it was a small circle of stone, and in the middle of the stones was propped up a little tree, a little branch of a thing. We gathered around it, and this Santa man took from his cloth bag a few strange little handmade objects. There was something that looked kind of like a rag doll, and something that looked like a a knot of brown fur tied to a stick. And there were a number of other little branches from other kinds of trees, and all of these he carefully placed on the solstice tree. Last, he took some dried corn, and he sprinkled it over the top of the tree. He looked to us and asked for our things. Ricky and Cindy gave him their stuff, and he placed them along the bottom of the tree. I handed him the manger. He looked at it. It didn't look like a manger. And he said, The manger where the little baby lay. He looked right at me, and he said, What do you want for Christmas? What most do you want? I said, To believe. His face lit up. He had a big old white man smile. He said, Seeing is believing. He took Dougie's clown picture and said, Jambola. Jambola the clown. How how do you know his name? Oh, Jambola and I are old friends, aren't we? Dougie was very, very still. He stared up at him and said, I'm sorry I peed on you. The Santa man laughed. (laughs) Don't let it bother you. I've peed on a few people myself. He stepped around the tree and 
looked at Graham Cramshaw. It was her turn now. Quietly, she took a small paper box filled with seed out of her pocket. She poured the seed over the tree just as the corn had been poured. Now we stepped back as the big old Santa man knelt down by the funny-looking little tree and watched as he struck a wooden match and set it afire. There, standing with the sudden glow of the burning pine in his face, he said, For thousands of years, the people burned offerings in the long, dark night to light the way for others to come. They made things from what they found, and they poured their love, what they had made, into it and burned it to send the smoke off into the light of the heavens and down through the earth. This, this too, is Christmas. I looked down and watched our little handmade things twist and turn in the fire. We all stood there quietly, watching, as the tree doubled over and slowly burned itself out. That was it. And then I slipped my present for Cindy into her hand. It was getting dark. We followed the Santa man back down the path. Cindy opened the little gift wrap. She looked at it. She took it in her hand, and she smiled. I I kind of feared she'd be upset it was not a ring, but that little metal butterfly necklace seemed to mean something to her. She put it on. She didn't say a thing. She just smiled. And then she slipped me my present, which was a box that rattled with something in it. It was flat and wooden and had little decorative metal hinges. As we reached the Santa Man's house, I opened the box and found it was full of pencils, odd ones, different sizes, some of them sharpened, some not. I stared at Cindy in the wash of light that poured from the the back side of the shack. Pencils? You gave me pencils? Yes, she whispered. You know, to write your stories with. But I don't have any stories to write. Well, when you do, now you got something to write them with. Mama July had the car running. The light was on inside. We could tell she was getting impatient. The Santa man gave each of us some maple sugar candy. It was, it was kind of chewy. Dougie pulled on his hand and again tried to apologize for the pee thing. But the Santa man shushed him and said, You take care of little Jambola. Dougie said, Okay, Santa. And then his eyes filled with tears. And he said, I love you. And he threw his arms around the old man. We all got very quiet listening to him cry. July tooted the horn now, and we said goodbye to him. He waved from his door and then walked back inside. As we rumbled down the road away from his little place, Rick said, Hey, hey, Graham, what's what's your story that's supposed to be about, that we're supposed to be, and what is it? She looked back at him from the front seat, and she said, Well, you ought to know what it is. You were just in it. That's great. So we had kind of the, the girl at the counter at the birth of the age of Aquarius, and we found out that there really is a Santa Claus. And that's pretty pretty wonderful. Is Dougie still he's gotta still remember this, I'm sure, you know, the I guess. Yeah. Dougie, uh I'm out of touch with all of these guys, but yeah. uh, but Luann, uh Luann Merkin, who is their younger sister, is a fan of the Facebook story, so I imagine she's following on these as well. Yeah. On the podcast. So she could tell us that. I went down to see Dougie. Uh, you know, I was always a little afraid to go see these guys years later. 
Because it's sort of like stepping into, I don't know, Michael J. Fox's DeLorean and getting back to the future or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah. But I did drive down to the last address that I knew that uh, Dougie and Ricky had. And when I got there, there was a little girl and she had a smattering of hair across her forehead. It was a summer day and she was holding a doll upside down, a little naked doll under her arm. And I thought, well, that, that looks like it could be one of their family members. <laughs> And I, I said, uh, is, uh, are your folks here? Can you, know, can you get your folks? And she went and got a woman who came down. And uh, I vaguely remember this was the place that I'd last known them to live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the woman said, um, I'm, she started telling me her name. And I, I said, well, I was friends with these guys, you know, Dougie and Ricky and these guys, you know. And we called them Cramshaws, but they had other names too, you know. And I started saying this, and she said, oh, Doug, yeah, he's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and I I mean, he's in my mind a little guy, you know. But also in Hilburn, we'd heard a story from his second cousin that he got killed in a motorcycle accident. And we'd heard that literally 20 years earlier. Yeah. And so I kind of didn't really expect to find him. I thought that was just a rumor, but, uh, you know, I guess it was it was just a rumor. And I said, so what's, what's Dougie like? <laughs> And she pointed to this genuine Harley, I mean, this funky chopper. And she said, well, that's his bike, if that tells you anything. Uh-huh. And, you know, little Dougie on a, on a chopper. She goes, yeah, he's like a deadhead. <laughs> and I said, really? He's like a little guy. She goes, oh, he's a big guy, you know. And, and she said, wait a, minute, wait a minute, who are you? So I said, well, I'm, I'm Chuck Stead. And she looked at me, I swear to God, and she said, wait a minute, Chucky Stead with the big head? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, I guess that's me. And uh, then she said, you mean those stories are true? <laughs> so she was hearing the stories from the other side of things. Yep. yep. I'm sure I was the goofiest one in those. Yeah, through a slightly different filter, right? Right, yeah. right, right, right. Oh, yeah. I I really enjoy finding friends, and, and I do associate with and speak on the phone with with people that are really very dear to me uh who i knew in kindergarten Mm. you know i i just uh i reconnect and and what i have found is that uh life does set up you know a massive number of different structures around them and stories around them but the essence of who they were when i first met them is still there Mm -hmm. they're still who they were and I hope that, that I'm still who I was. But it's, it's uh, some may have seen the movie uh, Lean on Me, I think it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is really a story by Stephen King about the fact that the best friends you'll ever have were the ones you had when you were kids. Yeah. And it's true. It's really... Uh, well, they start you out. Yeah. You know, all that, uh, all that early discovery is really important. Yeah, sure. They start you out. Yeah. So true. The fellow that I played at the celebration of Paul's life with. His name is Tony Lagatuda. Uh, we've been friends since we're four years old. And we're both 65, went through grammar school and high school. Wow. Right? wow. See that? Yeah, exactly. And and you find, you know, like when you first reacquaint, there's that little, you know, you have to kind of get through all the layers that life, you know, lays on you during the, the, the decades of, of, of your life. You know, some of them are protective layers and some of them are, are opinionated layers and things like that. Once you get through that, it's... You're just the same person you always were, and they are the same people. And what we were saying about the holidays last week, and about family, and about how that brings people together, and that can that can 
bring up some of the the conflict and some of the tension, and then you got to mm-hmm. work it out because that's what family does. Mm-hmm. In a similar kind of a way, around the holidays is when you kind of reflect on those friends from from your, you know, those yeah. those yesteryear chums, and uh, and little things happen, like you you put up a Christmas tree or a wreath, or you there, there's folks doing a little solstice celebration, or or your friends are. You know, they're celebrating Hanukkah, and you stop by, and there's little things that trigger those moments that you shared when you were a pre-adolescent, you know, that mm-hmm. just, oh, yeah, I, I got that feeling yeah. for a second. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's all in there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Vinnie Sullivan and Linda and Johnny Fee, you know, these were little friends I had when I was back in Paramus, and, and uh I have actually reconnected with some of them, and they're they're like I say, they're the same wonderful people they were back then. You know, it's it's a great thing, and and you realize that you you come to the realization that part of the reason why you are who you are was because they were in your life. You know, it's really something. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that's what's the, the greatest thing about the holidays, about Christmas and and New Year's and you know, any holiday is that we we get to stop for a moment. And think back and, and reconnect, you know, with those important moments in our lives and uh, important people in our lives, which is which is great. But uh, we answered the big question. We answered the big question. <laughs> I met him. You met him. I met him. Yeah, face to face. And what's interesting to me also is that you made this this point a couple of times that you either believe everything or nothing. And for some reason, I feel like that's a that's a Native American outlook, because it's not so much what particular dogma it is; it's that you recognize the gestalt that there's something more than you. Yeah, I, I think the Native. I think you're you're right, and and I, I think that's illustrated by the fact that Native American folks can become Christians. They can become Jews. They can become. They can convert, but they never let go of what they've come from. They just marry it into where they're headed. It's not in their makeup to divide things. You know, to build little walls between this metaphysical understanding and that one. It's all part of the same porridge. Hmm. So yeah. they don't have a problem becoming these other things. There was a wonderful story about when the Euron uh, missionary about. Well, this goes back 400 years or so. It's not a local Hilburn story, but up in Canada, a Huron missionary was, uh, he was, he was a missionary for the Hurons, and he was trying to get them to become Christians. And, uh, and they loved the stories of Jesus that he was telling them. And they put them right alongside the stories of Corn Mother. And he was trying to explain to them, no, 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 you, <laughs> you, you, you don't do that. It's, these are the, the ones we're telling you are the important. That, that's, that's no longer important. And they were shocked and, couldn't quite figure this out. And amongst themselves, they were talking about how he doesn't seem to understand this Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that true? <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. <laughs> like that. yeah. So our experience has been Santa Claus and Christmas and things like that. Scott, what, what's your experience been? I, I, I lived on a block, by the way, in Paramus, where we were the only Catholic family on the block. Really? Every, everyone else on wow. this block, it was the Blaus, the Wenzelbergs, uh, the Blacksburgs, the uh, uh, Webbers. The, we were surrounded 
by Jewish families. And it was wonderful. We shared Seder dinner with them, you know, we all kinds of things. My mother sang in the uh, at the synagogue. Wow. She she sang for a while at the choir at the church and then Rose Friedman from across the street said, "Why don't you come with me and just let them hear your voice?" And I, so she went with them and then she joined the choir that night and mm. you know, so we we had a really kind of wonderful ecumenical upbringing uh, where we really really enjoyed the stories. And I think it's part of the reason why w- when I did Tebia and Fiddler on the Roof, I really, I think I understood. What was it like for you at, at that time of year? Is it, is it? Well, I grew up in a completely secular house. We okay. never went to synagogue. We, When I uh, was 13, it was decided that I would be bar mitzvahed. So I had to go to a religious uh, parochial, uh, parochial school and he, I guess it was like Tuesdays and Thursdays or something and it was awful the place that I went to because that was the place we could afford was a ultra orthodox almost Hasid but they would never let someone like me there but an ultra orthodox yeah, yeah. rabbi's house that was wow. his uh, school and I went yeah. from talk about culture shock this was in Spring Valley you know I just I, it was. It's a pretty uh, easy language, uh, Hebrew, to learn to read because there are no exceptions, and you can, you don't know what you're saying, but you can look at the the alphabet and pronounce everything the way you're supposed to fairly quickly. And um, when they started talking about the stories, that's when. And now I'm, you know, I'm a 13 year old kid, and um, they were talking about how you know the world started 5,000 years ago. I said, okay, well, what about dinosaurs? And they said, okay, the dinosaur bones were placed in the ground as a test for God to know when human beings got to a certain understanding. And then I said, why would God not know that already? He's, is this, did I miss some part of the God thing? And that's when they knew they and had And they're like, get out of yeah, here. They had a problem. You, here. Right, they right. had a rabble rouser. Right, so I had to, I graduated from, the, and I wasn't trying to make trouble, I swear to whatever you want to call him. <laughs> but that's when I was transferred from the, the uh, class with the, the lady teacher to the rabbi's class himself. Uh, yeah. Now I, at first I thought, that's a good thing because, you know, I'm going to the advanced class. No, it's because he, he needed me right there so he could squash whatever questions <laughs> came out as I went. Uh-huh. So my dad was a, a devout atheist his whole life. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was all my mother's doing, coming to the school and having the bar mitzvah and all of that. So when my dad would pick me up from the uh, experience every Tuesday or Thursday, he was he would try very hard. And now I'm looking back at it, I could see that he really didn't want to sway me one way or another. He wanted me to make up my own mind. So I'd get in the car and we'd be driving home and he'd say, so how was it? I said, I'm really like confused with a lot of stuff. He goes, okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. You're asking questions you're yeah yeah i'm asking questions all right well you keep asking questions and see what they say but of course you know good that's very good it's great but you know as you're in a in a close-knit family you know what people are thinking sure (laughs) you don't have to say much so 
as I finished with the actual bar mitzvah itself, he, my dad said, okay, now I can tell you what I <laughs> was thinking. And, you know, he told me all of his, uh, how he came to his conclusions and all of that. And he had already obviously asked me about what I was thinking and I wasn't having any of it. Mm-hmm. So the turning point for him where he was able to kind of have a, a concrete understanding of his beliefs was when he came across the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. And that's what got him to read the New Testament oh, and wow. to delve deeper into what the issues were. And it became, it became my favorite uh, piece of art, really, mm-hmm. as an adult, uh, because, and I only realized this way later, it's a passion play, but it's from a humanistic yes. perspective. Yes. So right. it doesn't assume all of the things that all of the other tellings have. Right. Right. And so that was a very interesting to me, and that was a deep connection, that, that one of the many that my dad and I had with each other. Um, but getting back to your original question, the one holiday that we would celebrate every year was Hanukkah. And I think this was a, a construction of being in America where the only holiday that was around the time of Christmas that could somehow compete was Hanukkah. But Hanukkah isn't even a holiday. It's a festival. Right, right. It's the least important thing. It's not even the story it's based on is not even in the Bible. It's in the Apocrypha, which are the stories that neither the Christians or the Jews wanted necessarily. They weren't important enough to be right. in the, the Bible itself. Right. And they came up with... However they could describe what was happening. Now, I didn't know any of that growing up, and we didn't care because it was uh, family time, and, of course, there was the the presence and, and sure. the excitement of, of all well, of when that. I, when I learned about Hanukkah as a kid, I thought, well, they got it better than us because we That's get right. one-day gifts. They got <laughs> eight <right>. days. <laughs> but I thought, well, damn. Right, <laughs> right. I loved the candles, and we got to, you know, sometimes light them, and, and there was a little ceremony sometimes, and things mm-hmm. like that, and and so I, I loved getting into that. But to me, was a, Hanukkah was a story of hope, you mm-hmm. know, just a, a kind of a story that things will will be okay, we'll get through this, mm-hmm. you know, we'll we'll be all right. So that and that to me, that's that's what religion, so, so to speak, or really my spirituality is about. It's about hope. We're here to try to leave the place better than we found it and to believe that there's there's always a way. Christmas, to me, has always been that. This is about hope. This is about getting together. This is about remembering, you know, reaching back and connecting. And Hanukkah, the same thing. It was very much the same thing to me. And most of our friends, you know, we were the crazy <laughs> the crazy Catholic people on the street with, with 11 kids, you know. Right, <laughs> look right, at right. I remember... Uh, Irving Winslowberg saying, Joe, you need a job at night. You need a job that works at <laughs> night is what you need, you know. But uh, it was great. We, we really had a, it was a wonderful neighborhood. I loved every, every minute of it. But that's what it means to me, you know. That's, uh, the other piece of it is uh, gratitude. I yeah. think the idea of, of thinking about what you have and being grateful sure. for it. And when you're surrounded by family and when you're younger and you're getting presents and more like a um, a physical manifestation of it. I think it's it's also a really important part of of the equation. How about you, Joe? This all sound familiar to you? 
It does sound familiar to me. Uh, you know, growing up in a Catholic household and went through uh, grammar school, uh, uh, Catholic grammar school, I remember questioning as a kid, I think it was the first or possibly second grade, because uh, I was always curious. I was just wondering, and we cannot possibly be the correct people, you know, on the planet, the only ones that have it right. Sure. Asked about, uh, what if you just wanted to go into another house of worship and stand in the back and watch? Well, they, I just thought the nun was going to bite my head off. How dare, you, <laughs> how dare you question your faith? And so I was like, hmm, there's something to, something they don't want me to know. Mm. So I was always, always curious and always explored. I mean, I grew up with... I had, they weren't even blood aunt and uncle. I thought they were, but they were the Blausteins. They lived next door to my grandmother. I didn't know that they were Jewish. They were just my aunt and uncle who took care of me. Um, so, I, but I knew their holidays too. And I, I just thought everybody had, you know, it was all one thing. Yeah. Except, you know, we, we did, we did grow up, you know, Italian, pretty hardcore Catholic. Sure. Uh, always questioned it and still questioned it to these days. So yeah, yeah. no longer go to church and that's about it. You know? Yeah. Very much the same, you know, with me. Yeah. My folks, you know, were were devout Catholics, obviously, and everything. But I can remember Sister Roberta because I went to Catholic uh, grammar school, and she, I remember I was always the same thing, always a questioner, always, you know, yeah. yeah but how could how could something you do in a in a life that has a beginning and an end, you know, then evoke a punishment for all eternity? That seems crazy. I don't. She would always say, so Sister Roberta one day. Joseph, 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 you're always trying to put Jesus Christ in a little corner and see if he can get out of it. You know? <laughs> said, no, no, I'm just asking, you know, that's it. I, I, I want to know. I'm curious. That's good. I think it's good to be curious and keep asking questions. And- yeah, they got me into trouble a lot in grammar school, but, you know, yeah. they always just say, you know, when I would say why, they would tell me why is a crooked letter. I said, oh. <laughs> Why, why is a question? I want to know. I want to, it's not a uh, letter. I yeah. want to know why. Then, then, then I'll shut up. Otherwise, <coughs> you're not going to shut up. You know. Well, I think this one is dropping on the twenty third. Yep. So we're right between solstice and Christmas. And what what days does Hanukkah fall on this year? Do you know? Looks like it's the Sunday, the eighteenth. Oh, sundown is the yep. first okay. evening. So it's going to be it's going yeah. to be so uh, Sunday the eighteenth. Before so tonight this, is night six. Tonight would be night. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this episode is landing on night six, two days past solstice, and one day, two days actually before Christmas. It's landing right in the middle Sorry. of everything plus night six. So we got all kinds of interdenominational celebration oh, yeah. happening right now, right yeah. at the heart of this thing. This sure. Is, this is good. So we wish all of you out there who have been listening to our stories and been a part of this uh, a really wonderful holiday season, a wonderful Hanukkah, a wonderful Christmas. And for those of you for whom uh, those uh, don't have the same meaning, we wish you a wonderful and hopeful and warm gathering. Try to keep those arguments down. Let's not talk about politics. Let's just keep that out of the conversation. And a good solstice, a good solstice too. Right. Make it about food. Make That's it about food. right. That's right. Make Enjoy it the all food. about food. Yes. You bet. And then you can't go wrong. Hey, guys, this has been wonderful. And Thank we'll, you so we'll much. We'll go out on some of Joe's music again. We're yes. going to run uh, an entire piece of Joe's music yep. right now. It's beautiful, and we're very lucky that he's contributing this to, to our effort here on the podcast. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking. My pleasure. Thank you. Our pleasure, too. We'll see you next week, then. You bet. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. And now, friends... Please listen to a very beautiful and original composition written by Mr. Joe Rosaline, entitled 
Aubrey, Blue and Green. For a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their $20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. 
They call it the children's chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the children's chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>